Turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fans. Prepare to turn the f- up. Don't swipe left on this episode. Today, I am joined with the Vice President of Marketing for North America at Tinder. She also previously was the head of marketing at WeWork and the VP at VaynerMedia. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole Parlapiana. Thank Welcome. you, Daniel, for having me. I'm super excited for this conversation. I'm so glad that um, Robin connected us. And I'm stoked to hear your background in marketing and the tips that you have for marketers out there. Far many. I mean, I feel like it's been my, my career marketing feels like forever, but it hasn't been that long. It's not how I started. I was in finance and private equity the first part of my career and only became a marketer during, you know, 2009. And there was, you know, the first crash and just trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life if I wasn't going to be in you know, the financial industry. I think what attracted me to marketing was more about the company that approached me for a job than being a marketer. So my first marketing job was Addie Harmony, um, lo and behold. So a little bit of a connection to Tinder, but very different brand to work for. And I just found the business to be so fascinating and I just wanted to work for them that I would have pretty much done anything. So I took a pretty entry-level role um, on the acquisition marketing team and then the rest is sort of history. But this is the dating theme in my life or working at dating companies seems to keep coming up. And so it's sort of full circle being a tender now. Yeah, and you had some great experience, like in the middle of it, like going for B to B to B to C. Um, so, what was like the, what was that like jump from like doing B to C to B to B back to B to C? Like how marketing in those different types of. At the end of the day, we're all marketing to people, but obviously B to B has its little nuances that are way different. I knew you'd ask this because I have some very, <laughs> I think, interesting. I mean, honestly, I was so confused when I made the jump. I had really primarily worked in consumer marketing. Uh, you know, on the agency side in LA, we were, you know, working for e-commerce brands that were trying to build go-to-market strategies that had already sort of tapped out their reach on within search. Um, the social platforms were just starting to get into sophisticated buying. And a lot of what I started out doing was helping companies like Zillow, TripAdvisor, Hotlook figure out their offline strategy and figure out how to measure their offline strategy. Warby Parker is another, another example. And these were brands that wanted to measure media like it was digital, but were really uncomfortable in the offline space. Um, and there is like actually lots of ways to measure and there's a lot of impact those those channels could have depending on your demo. So that's where I started. And I think I had a little bit of B2B experience on the Vayner side because I oversaw 
the JP Morgan Chase account, which is, you know, a huge portfolio, but they definitely have small business uh, divisions and business services. Um, but I think the WeWork story is an interesting one because I, I would say for all intensive purposes, WeWork was very much a consumer brand and built like a consumer brand and not like a B2B company from a marketing perspective. And so the time that I arrived at WeWork, it was, you know, marketing to larger companies instead of individual and solo entrepreneurs or small businesses was becoming less of a priority. We felt like we had a really good hold on that market and we wanted to move up to mid-sized businesses and enterprise businesses. So I was in this place where I'd been hired, you know, to do growth marketing and performance marketing, but my the bulk of my experience is doing that on the consumer side. So trying to figure out like what is the mysterious world of demand gen and you know content marketing and I I think what I learned is is really there isn't a huge difference. It's just the language that we're speaking that really makes people feel alienated. You know, we're marketers the end buyer is a person, you know, there is certain channels that will work differently. But at the end of the day, I think we've created languages that make it more complex and make people feel like they can't bridge that gap. And I think a lot of what we need to do is just speak normal language. Is it acquisition? Is it brand? I think you just stay in the consideration stage a little bit longer. For B2B sales, there might be more people involved, but I think we've seen, we've not seen many big B2B brands invest in brand in the right way. And I do think it does make all the difference and it does, you know, certainly help the sales team to break through um, and get people to call them back or respond to them if you've built a super strong brand. But the similarity is, and I think the biggest channel that works for both consumer and B2B is word of mouth. I mean, we know that people feel good about asking their friends about their experience. That's why we see influencer marketing, you know, continuing to be one of the biggest ROI channels in consumer marketing. Uh, People want to hear from other people. They don't want to hear from brands. And I think that I haven't really seen that deployed in a super creative way on the B2B side, whereas like we do tons of case studies, but I think having business leaders advocate for and speak to other business leaders about their process and about the tools they're using and about the partners they have is not done enough. Or maybe it's just not being done in a way that's as engaging for people to want to watch through. I've seen very few case studies that I actually want to watch the whole way through. And I think that's that's kind of like an interesting you know, case to crack um, as a B2B marketer. Yeah, one thing I want to dive into is dive deep in is the word of mouth thing because I think word of mouth is the best channel, but it's also one of the hardest channels to measure. Mm-hmm. But, and I want to talk about this idea of measuring anyway. So doing these like influencer marketing campaigns and other other demand gen efforts or acquisition efforts to promote that bringing more than that, like how do you measure lift in those channels? Yeah. I mean, I think you can ask people, where did you hear about us? I think people are just inherently that 
that is then putting the attribution and the onus on an individual and there's multiple touch points. So which one had the highest impact? I think those are, those are flawed. We use them. On the influencer side, for me, I guess I would say it's been a little bit easier because we understand the, you know, the steady state of the business and the baseline of the business. Um, we have revamped the way that we work with partners and influencers. You know, some people take the approach of using a lot, many small micro influencers, and that is really, really, really hard to measure. We've taken an approach where we have probably eight very, very, very high impact partners that when they post, you can see it and you can see it the day that it happens. Also in social, you can see, you know, how many views, what was, you know, look in the comments and see what the sentiment is and kind of try to gauge how people feel. Do they, do they feel like this was a genuine representation? Did they feel like the content was good? Did they get it? Did it resonate with them? So I think those are the things you look for on the consumer side. On the B2B side, you know, I guess people would say I came in through a referral or I know of somebody or someone recommended. And so I think a lot of your inbound, you can say, I would just assume that the lion's share of the inbound you get, I would say is probably at minimum 60% coming from word of mouth at the highest 80 to 90%. But I think that's why it's really, instead of focusing on demand gen or how to pull people in. It's how do you create an experience or a product that people want to talk about that they want to recommend? And how do you cherish those relationships with your current customers so that they are advocates in building advocacy? And it's a lot more of focus there, which a lot of companies, I think, forget along the way as you get more hungry for growth and revenue, that sometimes resources are prioritized to the growth side and not necessarily on like the account management or the retention side, which is a mistake. Well, you made a great point. I think, how do you balance that acquisition side versus like building a brand that people want to like come to? Because I think some of the short-sighted goals and models the companies are doing right now are causing diminishing returns on brand and then later down the line you see this multi-multiple time in companies like they grow really fast and then they can't sustain because they don't have brand anymore um where like a company like airbnb yeah i was gonna say airbnb is a really good example of like gold standard and they're probably one of the only tech brands of this cohort that built brand first and prioritized it I would say Tinder, where I currently work, like, I mean, it, Tinder, I have, I'm the beneficiary of a brand that really, we didn't take the same approach as Airbnb, where we didn't do a lot of advertising for Tinder in the early years. It just sat within culture. People used it and it was the first of its kind. So when people ask, like, anytime you plug in dating app, it's the usually top of mind is going to be Tinder. and a lot of what of the entertainment placement we get within rap music within like we've no we've never paid for that we are just embedded in culture so i think it is really important i think the difference between i think there's there there're good example of tinder is a brand that's held in the hands of the consumers and the consumers 
I think we really feel are the best representation of the brand and the experience. I think we're working on elevating, you know, their experience on Tinder more than we have in the past. Airbnb really built a global brand that means something, you know, uh, something different in local markets. And it's certainly take, taken a global, but yet a local approach. And and they got really serious about it within the first couple of years. And, you know, it's testament to the strength that people will still use them even in a pandemic and trust them and feel good and connected to the brand. Whereas with a lot, it could have taken the route of like a very transactionary platform that we're just going to get something done and get off. I would say that's the relationship we have with Uber. It's the relationship we have with Instagram. It's very utilitarian and not preferential. Yeah, and I think I want to get into this interesting topic that I don't talk about is embedding it into culture because like Airbnb, right? You you use it like I can book an Airbnb, like or I'm gonna go or like I'm gonna Venmo someone or I'm going to like they've embedded in culture is like verbs like that people like do doing things. But also like I think Tinder also has a, a cool example of like they kind of started kind of what the hashtag was to Twitter, the the, the swipe right and swipe left was to like Tinder. So they started like a product like growth thing where everybody is using all these apps that nobody ever saw before. So how do you embed your marketing into like current culture? What are some strategies to go about that? I mean, I think some good examples have been, you know, I think Peloton's done a good job like recently with when you're working, I think these deeper integrations with culturally relevant people and not just using them for ad campaigns, but embedding them into the product are super interesting. So the Beyonce and Peloton integration, it's got more legs than just using Beyonce's music. It's got, you know, um, a cause-related platform to democratize, you know, fitness and exercise and health to people that can't necessarily aff- afford a Peloton. I think, you know, knowing when it's time to let the cultural trendsetters all the way into your business and help have them help shape the narrative. So whatever feature you're launching is got some, you know, relatable faces really vested into it beyond just, you know, partnering for an ad campaign. I think one that's coming to mind is I think Facebook portal used Jennifer. It was like a star studded cast in a commercial they did a few years ago, it was like Jennifer Lopez, I think Alex Rodriguez, there was just a lot of people in it, but they didn't have anything to do with shaping the product. And there wasn't anything, there was no other there there. I think that you have to kind of, it's an, it's an all or nothing and you have to like really figure out how you're going to answer that question from both a product and marketing perspective. And I think a lot of times the cycle is that product comes up with something and then marketing figures out how to market it. And sometimes that's, you know, throwing a celebrity on there or a trending song to, you know, make it work in external channels. But I do think as marketers, it, it is a symbiotic relationship where we can bring culture into the product and where there's product ideas that can be birthed off of either people or trends 
that are deeply trusted and deeply vetted by your core demographic. So I think it goes both ways. I think that's a great point. And I think both in B2B and B2C, I think companies, the companies that do it well, doing well, doing it is integrating like the human element into their marketing, where it's like they're letting the customer tell the story, letting the customer build the product roadmap, letting like the experiences of their customer be like their marketing, where like other people are, other companies are letting like their company be the hero in telling the story, where it's the flip, it should be really flip. Like, how did you guide the, the hero of the story, which is the customer, to find this great solution? Where like, I think Tinder is a great example of these things of like people falling in love and like they have the story and it's like embedded stories into the product, right? Where you can use that. But they also have ability of saying like, hey, celebrities get on the platform and like start be on there. Like, so it's aspirational for people to like find these type of people on the platform, like who they want to find on Tinder, which is, I think is pretty cool. But it's like you said, it's embedding that human element um, of what you're trying to portray to your end user. Um, and it's usually like the, it's not being company facing, it's really driven by like the end user, um, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, something that we did at WeWork that probably didn't get enough energy around it that I was really proud of is two years ago, you know, we kind of, we, we really knew that it was the middle of B2B, you know, um, company size 100 to about 500. It's typically very CEO-led. It is a, d- a difficult place to be because you're, you're trying to figure out, you know, you're not big enough to maybe be publicly traded or be, you know, you don't have those resources available to you. You're struggling with trying to keep the culture you had at 50, at 150, at 200, at 250. You're struggling with trying to scale yourself. It's like actually a super lonely place to be from a business decision maker standpoint. So we had this idea and it really wasn't about their experience in WeWork spaces. And it wasn't a case study about how WeWork had helped them. It was, the concept was called Up at Night. And it was really that like asking them, you know, it, we, had, um, we had a few different types of C-suite individuals come on and just talk about like, what are the challenges? What keeps them up at night? What do they think about? Like, what is the biggest thing that's, that's nagging them? And we would record them at night before they went to bed. Like a lot of them had kids. You could hear the kids in the background. And I think really putting them on a platform and giving them um, the opportunity to talk about themselves and talk about their businesses was super special. And the only tie was that, you know, they all worked in WeWorks. They were all WeWork clients. But I think trying to make it more emotive and relate, relatable. And then the slight, you know, twist at the end is that like, these are, these are businesses that massively benefit from a WeWork because they don't have to worry about some of the things that, that they would worry, that they like would worry about if they were smaller. And if you're an enterprise company and you're a CEO, you almost never have to worry about like reception or facilities or build outs. Like you've got entire teams that do those things. I think it was a special 
brand play because I think it starts a conversation that's really different than the one that's you know being written about in Fast Company about the wins. Um, there's struggles, there's growth pains, there's there's obstacles, there's hurdles. It's a lonely uh, place to be because you're typically not surrounded by C-suite. You don't have time to go to all these conferences and networking events that you would have if you were the CEO, uh, you know, at a at a large publicly traded company. So how do you create, you know, that dialogue and how do you make them the heroes and how do you find a way in your marketing to make sure that they get exposure because they're also brands that don't have a ton of money to put towards marketing usually at that stage. So if we're selflessly helping and we're selflessly in everything that we do um, as a company to try to benefit not just ourselves, but the companies that are in our buildings, that really delivers on a promise that that really no other co-working or real estate company at that time was focused on or could deliver on. Going back to the data part of it, I, there's no like data to like show like that was the right thing to do. But it's that's where marketing has this kind of art and science, right? It's like sometimes you have to try something that's different that other people aren't doing it. There's not and kind of take cut up the playbook that the companies are running and do something different and try it. And even if it's it easier, yeah. I think it was easier at that point. I think it also these things have to do with cost. So I think it's like super easy or easier to try something new if the cost is not super high. And you can test in small ways. And I think with the nature of podcasts and you know using um, you know our member companies that willingly participated. You know, it wasn't like asking the company to put down the money for a Super Bowl ad. Is it going to work? So you can figure it out in small ways. And if you can't see signals of it being brand positive, it's things like that that you just have to kind of, once the creative comes out, see how it makes you feel, see how it makes other people feel in a gut reaction, and know that it's just right to do until you can build it bigger and assess impact later, but it's really hard to get people to get executives to take big swings on programs that are expensive and hard to measure. That's a really good point. I want to get into the subject of like data privacy because this is becoming more and more prevalent in today's day and age where especially like in your industry with iOS apps, but also like Google have it getting lawsuits and Facebook getting lawsuits for like data privacy stuff. Like how should marketers think about these issues coming up of like restricting data from these platforms? Yeah, I mean I think yeah the FTC dropped they're gonna be investigating and poking into I think it was Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Google, TikTok. I think these changes are good. I think there's two part and parcel. It's how do you what is the responsibility you have as a as a tech company and, and a platform? And I think at Tinder, at Match Group at Whole, like we don't, we are subscription based. It's not an ad based model. You know, if anything, the, the data we use is to help people better connect. It's not to sell to anyone. So I think that that is a separate conversation from like moving to a world with iOS um, fourteen 
and being a performance marketer or a data-driven marketer and knowing that we will no longer be able to tell, you know, this ad on Facebook brought in this many women at this age on this device. You know, I think, and I think what we have to be comfortable with is that the tide has shifted on data. And I think there is two things happening in the market. And I I do think the social dilemma, the Netflix documentary had a lot to do with uncovering and unveiling some of the things that we knew were happening. Some of us were comfortable with it. Me being one of them, I, I always was this proponent of like, I'd rather them have all my data so they can serve me more ads that are relevant to me. And then I think, but some of it, I think what's bothering people is not the accuracy of the personalization. It's the social impact and the social ramifications and the lack of those platforms actually providing value to the end user. And the end user is ultimately their main form of currency. So I think it, it gets complicated. I coming from performance marketing and being really comfortable with that and and having a mentality of zero waste and knowing exactly who you're delivering to and delivering the right message at the right time. You know, even just saying those phrases makes me kind of like want to throw up in my mouth because I'm kind of dead or just happy that they're just like not going to be around anymore. And if we're still using them, we're fooling ourselves. I think it comes down to being comfortable with not having that data I think we all don't really know if the data we were looking at was real or not real. No one's attribution model was perfect. And I think so many companies were still trying to work on how do we implement MTA, last touch, first touch, but we can't measure these channels on that. I mean, it was always incomplete. And then there's, you know, the walled gardens of the big digital platforms won't even let the measurement tools come in and measure anything. So I would say that after chasing this, I don't know, for the past five or six years and, you know, spewing again, like these, this language that marketers like to use um, to separate themselves from others. I'm really happy that we're going into a new phase where it really becomes about, it's brand led. It's about great creative. It's about contextual placements, meaning being in the right places where you know your demo is and being there in the right way. And instead of these programmatic buys where you're not even sure where your ads are showing up. I mean, there's been tons of safety concerns around that. So I think it's actually going to become very much brand led. You're going to have to take big swings or you're not going to see it. Like you're going to have to take risks and it's going to be time. It's going to go back to the days of like TV ads where unfortunately you're going to have to put more emphasis on creative And you're going to have to establish a baseline of your business, do less or swing big so you can see an incremental lift. If you don't see an incremental overall lift in your business and you are running any type of campaign, then I would say it's not working or it's not working enough. So I think it just goes back to like a more purist view and less of a tactical view of strategy, which quite frankly, should take a lot of work off of people's plates and be more committed to the brands they they know they should be based on consumer insights versus this ad got more click-throughs, so this should be the message that we put out there. I mean, when you think about the amount of faith 
we put into performance dictating what should be out there for a brand is it's kind of scary. And I also think one thing that it, which makes a good point is that I just because messaging had a higher click through and you're following the data does not mean that like that person is going to stay in the journey for the rest of the time. Like you're you're basing your decision, a lot of marketing based decisions off of the first conversion of the customer. But it doesn't mean they're gonna talk to you about you out there. It doesn't mean like their messaging is going to resonate well. It doesn't mean you say you if a lot of the ads at work are very quick baby. Like and quick bait is just to get people through the door. It doesn't mean like it's gonna they're going to resonate with your brand after that. So I think like a lot of the data stuff that people are looking at is like very short-sighted because a lot of it's like not LTV related. It's not like looking at like how, what is it? What is that person's willingness to like say it to a friend like MPS of like that, that person who came in, like, what and is, about what, just the fact that we're saying the word click and how old tech that sounds like when you think about that, like, I, 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 like, I just, it just caught me when you and I were talking about it. It's like, what are, I, it makes me think of like someone sitting there with their mouse on their computer. Like think about how like exaggerated and how like dated it sounds. Cause we just don't click on things anymore. Like we do, we go through our own journey. If, if I read or see something I like, like, I would never click on the ad. I'd go into Google search and that's where I would uncover more and go through discovery. But when we the think, or maybe I'd go on Instagram and see what their Instagram page looks like before I would like, I think we're all naturally more curious and the way that we use mobile and the places we go to, to find validation, these click like, when I think about last click, it's like, who even does that? People clicking on ads, but like, I don't, you know, I think I always think about younger and younger. They're just not that way. But it's also, I think a great point you made too, is I think back 10 years ago, like there was very gated information to find things. It was harder to find things. So like people had to click through to, discover products especially in b2b like they had to make that click or they had to like download an ebook but now with like con- so much free content out there so much podcast out there so much information out there like the buyer journey has changed like people like i even think about my buyer journey as a b2b buyer and the first thing i go to do is type in like best x soft like best software and then once I figured out, I will go ask like someone who's in, like in my space and say, have you used this? What do you think about this? And then after I'll be like, okay, I might get served some ads after a little bit. And then I might go to the website and see what they're saying on the website. And then I might get served another ad. And then by the time I'm ready to buy, I'm ready wanting to buy the product. Like right By the time I go to their site and click request the demo or like, download app or whatever i've already made the conscious decision to do it and there was like 35 touch points that is not being like accounted for marketing and i think it doesn't really matter anyway because like 
that brand built that experience for me. Like the, the reason, like you don't, a lot of the times you buy things because of the brand. Like it's like, cause you think of like, I buy like all the softwares I probably buy are probably not the best like product in the market. Let's be real. Like, or like some people buy the, don't buy the best car because it's the best car in the market. They buy it because this, the, like people have validated that it works for their company. Um, or it worked for them or it worked. So it's, it's so funny to me that like, that's why I get annoyed when a lot of people say like, oh, we got a brand search from this and that's why I converted. And I'm like, is, how did they know about? Yeah, they had to know. I mean, they have to know, uh, <laughs> they have to know the brand if your brand search is really, I mean, obviously brand search is your best converting channel because people, you were top of mind before they freaking searched. Like yeah. <laughs> you have to, like, it's, it's crazy. We would, um, on the WeWork side, you know, it was really hard to explain to people outside of, cause the whole company was based in New York and San Francisco. It was hard to explain that like, you know what? People in Charlotte were showing up at a WeWork thinking they were going on a job interview or they thought they were going to buy a physical desk to take to their home. It was hard for people to understand. We couldn't just run acquisition in these markets where people had no idea what, like they don't know what this new model of like co-working and flexible workspace is. We work to them sounded like an HR company. And then in our, you know, performance ads, you're like, come, you know, tour for a desk or desk starting at $300. And they thought we were like a pottery barn. And so what we ended up doing, cause we didn't have, a way to track brand. And we certainly, the only way that we were getting the brand out there was a lot of reliance on PR. And when you're one of these hot new disruptor companies coming up, everyone covers you. But what people didn't realize is that those, the subscriber bases of those types of publications are very concentrated on the coast. And if we are looking to drive the business in other parts of America, you know, you, you do need brand. And so the way that we sort of made this make sense, the executives that we work is we looked at the branded search volume and we looked at the non-generic search volume and we developed these indexes to understand what is the demand for office space, real estate, and co-working. And then what share does we work, like do the we work queries take up? And you know, when you have such low brand search volume, there is no way to stoke that. There's no amount of bidding that is going to win there. Um, it also highlighted in some markets where there just wasn't, there wasn't just, there wasn't demand for the category. So then you knew that you had to create demand for the category in association with WeWork, which meant it was going to be a lot more, it was going to be a lot more money to say, get those buildings and those markets up to occupancy because we had two jobs to do. But you know, I think when you're the beneficiary of tons of earned media and PR, you sort of think that is brand and you forget that you don't have a, you don't have control over where that goes, even though it's national coverage and that you can't just start with performance marketing because you're going to get, you know, you're going to get people that are largely confused about what they're even signing up for. So, uh, so it leads to a lot of unqualified leads which like you could say that not only does brand drive top volume, but like you said, you're, you're, when you're ready to buy, 
you're so much more educated. The salesperson doesn't need to do a lot of education. You're informed and you know what you're there for and you probably have narrowed down your options, but it's a waste of everyone's time if people are coming in and you don't even offer what they're asking for. (laughs) It just clogs the pipes a lot, you know? A lot of, one of my favorite marketers say you're going to win before they get to Google, which means like pretty much you're going to win on brand because for example, like when people are ready to buy, they're in that, like that frame of mind, they're ready that they're going to buy. So then you have to have some sort of like reputation behind it when they're ready to buy. That's why like you see low conversion on like, maybe not a B2C, but a B2B like direct response ads on Facebook to convert down funnel because they know you're asking people to trust a brand that they don't know to buy like what like in the first the first like time you actually saw them like the reason why I think it works for like a company like service tied in or maybe like other companies that have brand behind them is like more than likely someone in the industry knows who Servant Titan is. So we're going to, if they see Service Titan, they'll take a look because they know who we are. Like they, we built the infrastructure of brand before we started doing heavy performance, which a lot of people do performance and then they, they don't. They are on brand later. Yeah. Um, it's how you're start. You're, you're taught to start from the bottom and build up again. I think that that will change because like what is starting at the bottom mean if you don't have the data on like who would be likely to convert because we're not going to be getting that data anymore or be able to know that those discrete audience segments are yielding conversions. But I think, you know, even though I'm in a, the consumer side, the category I'm in is, is not, I don't think you win at the bottom there either. I think the social channels tend to do really, really well for D to C e-commerce. I think people do buy brands. They, buy like a blanket or a pair of shoes or, you know, I think Glossier is a perfect example where women just saw those Instagram Glossier ads and they, they were just like women coloring in their eyebrows and you were like, I'm going to, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to click through and buy it. I think there are impulsive categories, but they're also very churny categories that don't really have loyalty in this. They're just they're very different. Um, it's not life changing um, where, you know, in the dating space, if someone becomes single, they know where they know the apps they're going to download and you never know when someone's going to become in the market. And these days you never know if people are in open relationships, if they're polyamorous, like it's such a wide, wide space that the brand marketing becomes so important to stay top of mind. You just never know when people are in the market to look around and see what else is out there. So it becomes like, I, I don't see performance as a huge play, but you know, I think it's different for every, every category is different. One of the last questions I have for you is, and I'd like to ask everybody on here is like, what do you think most marketers are doing wrong today? I would say that marketers, <laughs> this is a loaded question. I am shocked at the things that marketers do to make internal powers that be happy versus their consumers happy still. I think so much of what one person thinks is cool or a good idea 
or someone wants to be visible um, dictates what you do versus having conversations with the consumers and being comfortable letting the brand go. I do, I'm still surprised at how many brands are like trying to strangle the narrative and control it. And I think if anything shows in the past year, we can't plan for it. You have to be comfortable, like letting go a little bit, even in just like the production conditions we've been in. It's, you know, you couldn't produce content, you know, legally. Um, So are you okay with just giving really wide open briefs and having, you know, creators shoot their own content? Like I'm okay with it. And I'm, I'm surprised that we are still in a place where brands think they need to dictate. And we've got just the most exciting time to be alive in terms of technology and creativity. And you've got Gen Z coming up and they know how to face tune. They know how to edit video. They're like, they're highly creative to not have that be a resource versus really expensive agencies and really big TV ads when, you know, the NFL's had its worst, you know, viewing year, even though we're in a pandemic, it just seems like crazy to me that we don't see more brands trying different things, democratizing their brand, democratizing their creative, and really stop trying to chase what's happening and be relevant in the now. I'm still surprised to see ads that are COVID. Oh, like, I think I saw something yesterday that's like, capture all your family Zoom pictures so you can have them all the time. And I'm like, you know, too much. Like, I get that you're trying to be relevant for the time, but how much do we want to be reminded that the only relationships we can have right now are through this computer? We're dealing with it. It's suboptimal. To me, it's, it's, um, we're still trying to put an optimistic face when it, it doesn't, you know, you have to kind of understand that people are exhausted. So I think I find it interesting. And it's probably because the ad was created like three months ago before the second wave hit and before we're all, you know, forced to go back to the conditions that were March. But this is the problem is it needs to be faster. It needs to be more human and you need to stop trying to control it so heavily. I love that point about Marcus trying to make internal people happy versus external. I think that's like, they don't, they try to, I always say like stop being seller centric and be buyer centric. Cause like a lot of people are trying to like, Oh, what is it better for the sales rep? Or what is it better for this? And instead of like, the sales team likes it or the head of sales loves this. It's like, who gives a shit what they love? Like it's not about what they love and they feel good about. I mean, it happened all the time at the CPG brand. It's like, well, the VP of marketing loves this rapper. So we have to like, but is this, is this the person that's the most relevant to the demo or does he just want to do an ad with this person? Cause he wants to meet them. Like there is so much of that that still happens and it's still very ego driven. And it just, it, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Well, the last question I have for you is like, how could, markers stay relevant with like ever-changing things because like especially at tinder with the rise of gen z and tiktok and stuff like that like how as a marker should they work on staying relevant so i would say we sign up as marketers to be young and cutting edge forever it's almost the bar is probably as high as it is for anyone who's in on the product side of, of tech and it is our job to be in all of these places 
and maybe you don't need to interact, but you need to be there to see how people are interacting um, and you need to push yourself to be uncomfortable. Like I'm probably going to, after this call, you know, uh, I've been trying to figure out OnlyFans, inappropriate place for me to be, but it's important for me to understand what's happening on there because it has larger implications for tech, for marketing, for the way people connect, for social platforms. It is our job to be there. And I would, I would say that when you get lazy in your own media consumption and you're not willing to be on platforms because you feel too old or you feel it's inappropriate is where you lose your edge. So it's like, if you don't have the appetite to constantly be changing yourself and trying new things and being open, then like you don't have the appetite to be a marketer long-term. This is the land. I mean, it's a great point because I think a lot of cross, there's also a lot of like cross habits that humans are doing. Like OnlyFans is a great example of like, even if it's not the most appropriate platform to be on, scrolling but it it is a lot of creators especially are sick and tired of creating content for free and getting the and like that's like and there is i could see like a lot of and even in the b2b space a lot a lot of creators are moving their audiences to pay platforms where they can give them a personalized experience and give that like not have their content off for like that they spent 20 years like learning beyond in the open. So I think it's a great example of like, why, why are people paying to be connected to that one person that is creating content? And I think it's not getting into the trap of like, you read the trades. So you get what TikTok is and you get what OnlyFans in because you read it because somebody wrote about it. The folks covering are looking for headlines. They're not looking for an unbiased opinion of what the user experience is like and what the angle is. They're looking to tell a story and usually, you know, think about what their model is. It's clickbait, (laughs) even if at at the best, you know, publications and how can you read, you know, like an article from Taylor Lorenz, who is the best of the best about TikTok. If you're not on TikTok, you don't even understand half of what she's talking about. But I think a lot of people read about it and they think they know. So TikTok is for kids. It's spreading bad news. I mean, if you're not if you're not on the platform, then you don't know what it is. Same thing with OnlyFans, where I'm to your point, OnlyFans is introducing something that I'm not a big social media person, um, probably because I've had to do it for my career for brands, and I just it, it exhausts me just thinking about doing it for myself. But I would say that you even just running it from a running brand social. And people are just trolling you and anything you put up, they're going to hate. And the algorithms optimize, you know, just comments. And a lot of them are negative. And, you know, you wonder why does someone follow us if they hate us? And then I look at, you know, some of the, some of the influencers, the celebrities we work with, and, you know, they have a lot of fans that love, love, love them, but they have people that like are just spewing venom at them and how dangerous it is. And they're not making money when they're posting on Instagram. So for someone that has a large following who has like, you know, just a rabid fan base, why not move to OnlyFans and have a subscription model and it's all love. And at least then if you're getting trolled and they're still slinging hate at you, they're paying it. (laughs) They're paying you. It's just, it's, it, if you take, you know, the, what we know about it being mostly for pornography or, or, you know, sexual interest out of it, it is a genius model and it solves a problem that, none of these like 
other social platforms have been able to solve for folks. So I think it's super interesting, but I think when we depend on news publications to form our opinions about new tech apps without actually being users and understanding the community, I think that that it's not enough and you have to actually, you have to actually go on there and and sort it out and figure it out. And if it seems overwhelming, what I try to do is I focus on one at a time and I'll get super deep into like, okay, I'm going to try to figure out discord and I'm going to, you know, if I can't get into one of the servers, I'm going to try to find somebody that can, I'm going to try to like sort it out, figure it out. What's the experience on here. And I won't try to like, and at that point, I won't also try to like figure out TikTok or OnlyFans. Just pick one a quarter that you're interested in, get super deep and then zoom back out. And, you know, maybe you'll find that some of these apps are, are keepers, are things that you're going to keep using or that maybe your brand wants to use. But I would say that even if your demo is 50, <laughs> the 19 year olds are all going to be, or are like set to be our customers soon. And what the way that they want to communicate and the way they want to interact will be standard. So, so it's pretty important to be not discount what that generation is doing and, and, and how they want to be communicated with. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, there's a ton of things that I, we could talk about, like what you just said about the diving deep into one platform, because I truly believe even marketing, like you can't be good at all platforms, so you have to double down. But this has been awesome, and I want to give you a chance to find if people can connect with you, even if you say you don't use social media um, or what anything you want to like talk about. I'll give the floor to you for the last couple minutes. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I am on there, but everything else <laughs> is no. Um, I I am I'm just more private about my private life. I, I would think, and this has been great. I think I think it's an interesting next couple of years. I think if anyone's trying anything new or different, and I'm super, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about Gen Z. I'm just super interested in everything that's going on in that space, Roblox, like gaming. Um, I welcome anyone to reach out that wants to riff on these, on these types of things. Cause I'm just, I couldn't get enough of it. And I think that's when you're in a good place when you almost like have a, just such a passion to kind of figure it out. It's going to, I think we've, what we've seen this year, it's going to be, we're poised for, I think the next two years are going to be highly disruptive and fun. I think things were you know, before COVID hit, I, I would say relatively boring in the landscape of media and marketing. And although this has been uncomfortable, I think it it puts us all in new challenges and, and brands and companies and platforms are the ones that can dodge and weave are the ones that are going to emerge. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. I think there's a lot of valuable stuff in here that people need to take out of it. And thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you for having me. Yeah.